I ask that you open up to chapter 4 of Ephesians. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 6 with our primary focus this morning on 4 and 6. Now last time I was with you, we looked at 1 to 3. And we looked at kind of a part 1 of preserving Christian unity. So, if you're all there, I'm going to turn now. Let's read it. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, hear the word of God. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Praise God. Now last time we looked at the characteristics, you can say the attitudes of Christian unity that come from the Spirit of God. They come to Christians, those who have the Spirit. And we saw them. Just a review, they were humility. How to respond to preserve unity with all humility, with gentleness, with patience, to show tolerance for one another in love. With the objective here, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now today we focus on a relationship, a relationship to Christian unity, God's unity, and God's truth. There is a very important relationship. Today's message, we're going to look at seven essential doctrines. Doctrines for unity, you could say. Now when we say doctrine, what do we mean? Basically, that which is taught in Scripture. And where we derive these doctrines is Scripture. And these doctrines are, non, are essential doctrines, non-negotiable in our quest for unity as well. And they act as guideposts when binding those who have God's Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, these seven core beliefs, we're going to look at each one, have their resolve in something called absolute truth. What is absolute truth? Well... What is factual? It has a definite correspondence with reality. Absolute truth can be verified with fact. And absolute truth is exclusive. We're going to see that these truths are not subjective. They're not predicated upon bias or feelings or opinions. And absolute truth has no contradictions. Now, there are three laws on the laws of logic. Three, I'm going to name one. The law of non-contradiction. It's important as Christians we understand this. That a true statement cannot be false. If a statement does not accurately reflect reality, then it is false. Now, when we approach these seven statements, we have to understand that there is one. Singular. Uno. Not many of you knew I could speak another language. How about that? 
See? You learned something already. There's one. Now let me go through them real quick. There is one body. There is one spirit. There is, you are called into one hope of your calling. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all, through all, and in all. So, two mutually separate categories that diametrically oppose one another, both can't be true. That's a contradiction. And it violates this law of logic. And these doctrines are not only going to bring us to a better understanding of unity, doctrine unifies, but we'll see most importantly, and by necessity, doctrine also divides. So, these will assist us in our, our quest, our mission to preserve unity in the bond of peace. And one thing we have to understand, the unity that you're preserving with one another are those of the same spirit. Those who have been justified by faith who now have peace with God. Those who have peace with God we are to preserve the peace with one another. This is not peace with those of another spirit, most importantly. It's about those who are unified in the spirit. And we looked at the attitudes, and they're so very important. The humility, the gentleness, the patience. And we looked at how pride would rise up and try to distract us from unity and try to negate this unity that we have in Christ. That's why we are preserving or maintaining something we already have. So the idea here, here today is the right understanding, right thinking ought to produce right living, and that comes from doctrine. So without any further ado, let's go to the seven. Number one, and notice the exclusivity of each. There is one body. There is one body of Christ. We are part of the body of Christ here in Tottenville. But there's one. There's all kinds of people here. There's a diversity in this body. But there is a singular unity in the spirit. What spirit? Those who have the Holy Spirit. The spirit of Jesus Christ. And according to scripture, it's these who have peace with God. And consequently, a positional peace with one another. They make up the church. The body is the church. The body of Christ are a reconciled people that become part of this body through the cross of Jesus Christ. And Christ, remember, had broke down the barriers that separated people and made now the body into one new man. Now, there may be differences in this body of Christ, but understand the differences are secondary to the commonality which is Christ and which is these, these unity, these ones, these seven doctrines of oneness. Now the body has a multiplicity of different individuals that are united in this spirit and the body has many parts. And we're going to see this in the weeks, weeks ahead. When times when we look at Ephesians... For example, 1 Corinthians 12, and this is what Paul speaks about in other letters as well. For even as the body is one, remember, singular, and yet has many members, plural. And all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. 
For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. So those in the body have one spirit. You're part of one spirit. The second one we see in verse 4. Those who are true members are unified in spirit. Now to be unified in spirit, one of the prerequisites is that you have the Holy Spirit. That you've come to the knowledge of the Son of God by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That singular way as well. What spirit? The Holy Spirit. And those who are in this body who have God's spirit make up the family of God. But the reality is in our world there are many different spirits that the Bible tells us about. There is a spirit of this age. There is a spirit that is opposite of the spirit we have. And that is the spirit of not of Christ but of Antichrist which we will look at in a minute. There is the Holy Spirit and certainly there is the un. Holy Spirit. And many of the spirits can be deceptive. The spirit of this age. Now, how do we recognize the spirit of truth? Because one spirit, there are many spirits that all are about lies. They feed off lies, but there is one spirit that is truth. How do we recognize? Well, we recognize the spirit of truth from the spirit of falsehood. Those who are influenced by the spirit of the Antichrist are of the world. And they are opposite of God's truth. Simple, right? Simple. But we see that a lot of that spirit tries to infiltrate the church. The body of Christ. Now, they will inevitably embrace the values of the world. And when the church starts embracing the values of the world, it may not mean that they have the spirit of the Antichrist, but they are being influenced by not the spirit of God. Now, those who acknowledge Christ have the spirit of truth. You see, the spirit of the Antichrist not only seeks to deny Jesus Christ and the word of Christ, but seeks an alternative, seeks to replace Christ, seeks to have a Savior, a Messiah, a God, but not the God of truth. So those who have the Spirit are part of the new birth, and those who have the Spirit of God will be, are sealed by the Spirit. We saw that in chapter 1. And they are part of this hope. Because they will be sealed, they will remain. But there could be influence inside the church more on that in a minute. Those who have the Spirit of God have not a hope, have the hope, have one hope. The hope that is of the Word of God. The hope, an eschatological hope, a present hope. A present hope. But it will have a unified, unified outcome that we'll, we see in the end. All called who have the Spirit a part of the body. Amen? The body, the spirit. And these are those who are called with this hope. What kind of call is this? This is what's known as an effectual call. This is not a call that maybe, maybe you were called, maybe you won't be called. Those who God has called. For no man can come to the Father 
unless the Father who sent me, these are Jesus' words, draw him, and I will raise him up. John 6.44. All that the Father gives me will come. John 6.37. So this is the definite call that a believer has. Now, some may have been called in different times and seasons, and right now you may be on a different trajectory in, in your calling. Some of you are moving, but the call remains definite. It's definite. But what we are to do is we saw to walk in our calling, to walk in a manner worthy. And the, with the understanding of our hope. And what is this hope? Hope is defined as a desire for some future good with the expectation of obtaining it. It's a confident expectancy. Living now, walking in your calling we must have a confident expectancy, as we saw in our prayer this morning. We are not to fear. We have hope. You see, the people that you think are winning this cultural war are to be pitied. They're foolish. They don't have hope. They're deluded and deceived. Now, while we have a living hope, this hope culminates into what Paul would write, the blessed hope. It's a current hope. But it's a hope for a future, a confident expectancy. In Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. This is part of our hope. Now we looked at the hope of His calling in chapter 1 of Ephesians. But understand something about this hope. This definite call, this definite hope. It doesn't mean that you will be prosperous, healthy, that you'll never get sick. It doesn't mean that you'll have a life full of tribulation. It doesn't mean that you won't suffer. That's not what it means. It's not a life without problems, but it's a definite hope and calling that Christ will come again. And you will be with Him forever. Only the Christian has that hope. And where do we get that? These are part of these singular doctrines. It's one hope. That brings us to verse 5. We see the fourth number one. There is one Lord. One Lord. That's how we have unity. You see, when Paul was dealing with these issues, there was, there was the Jew and the Gentile that was now first reconciled, that the Jew did not have a separate God, a separate Savior, than the Gentile. No, there's one Lord. Who is that Lord? Jesus Christ. And the much diversity in the body of Christ, the true body around the world, all come through this one Lord. Acts 4, 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no exclusive other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. A very familiar scripture. I want you to really process it now. John 14, 6. I am a way. No. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man come unto the Father but by me. Are those the words of a good ethical teacher? Are those the words of a political refugee? The words of the one Lord, Jesus Christ. Christ and Christ alone. And now we understand the one Lord, one Spirit, 
Only by the Holy Spirit does anyone make this declaration. The one body, the one spirit. You enter into the body because no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So we're starting to see something. One spirit, one Lord, two people of the triune Godhead, the source of our unity. Now, not everyone always believed that Christ is Lord to this day. We see something in the fourth century. There were many what we call Christological errors. And there was a creed that had to be created in 325 AD, the Nicene Creed. And why was that? One of the first major errors when it came to Christ's deity, and even the Trinity for that matter, was something called, a heresy called Arianism. Now the church dealt with this error in Nicaea, but what is Arianism? It's a lie. It's the Watchtower Society, Jehovah's Witness repackaged. Now many of you would understand that because they do not affirm Christ as the Lord, singular. They do not affirm the Trinity as well. By implication, they cannot possibly affirm Colossians 2.9. For in Him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. But should you really think that Christ is the Lord? Well, why did we come, how and why should we come that, to that conclusion? Several ways. Number one, Matthew 9. Remember the, the scene, the paralytic man lowered down to be healed? What did Jesus do in that account? It's chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. What did he do? He forgave the man of his sins. Only God, deity, only the Lord can do that. Jesus forgave sins. Remember in the book of Acts, Peter and other apostles were doing performing signs and miracles, and many people wanted to give them worship. What did they do? Did they receive it? No, they rejected it. But Jesus received worship. In John 20, 28, when Thomas saw the risen Jesus, he called him both Lord and God, and Christ accepted his worship. Consider the words of this one Lord. His own words. When Jesus speaks and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Referencing Exodus 3.14. That's a reference to his eternality and his deity. By implication, there is only one Lord. And one must have an exclusive faith in this one Lord to be part of the next one, the fifth one, one faith. One faith. All people have faith in a variety of things. There are multiple faiths and multiple religious beliefs. There are multitudes of faiths. But what we're speaking about here is the faith and the doctrines that make up this Christian faith. Now this is a faith that not someone has. This is a faith that is obtained. This faith comes with that calling that we spoke about, that one calling. And this faith is not merely a profession of faith, but it is a possession of faith. And biblical faith, we would argue, in this church is a gift. It's a gift for those born of the Spirit who are called by God. And how did this faith come? By hearing and hearing of the Word of Christ. So we have the individual faith but what the text is telling us, we make, we're part of the faith. The faith.
Okay. And in context, it implies the foundational teachings of the church, the doctrines that are part of the faith, the singular, exclusive faith. Now understand something about this faith. We grow into our own personal faith, and we grow into the faith. We grow into the Christian faith. Faith is a gift, but there's an element of stewardship that comes with our own personal faith and walking in the Christian faith. To preserve unity and the stewardship, we read in Jude 1.3 that we must earnestly contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So there are many other elements that will try to infiltrate the faith. In Jude 1.20, we are also told to build ourselves up in this most holy faith by praying in the Holy Spirit. So this most holy faith is a distinctive, singular, exclusive faith. The sixth one we see in verse 5, there's one baptism. Now we've alluded to this already. I don't think this pertains to any sort of water baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And God willing, maybe in October, we will have a water baptism. I don't think it pertains to any sort of Presbyterian or infant baptism. That's not it. I think this is being baptized into the life of Christ and being baptized into his death. Now, why would I say that? Well, we see it in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. There we go again. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. And Romans, these are Paul's words, Romans 6, 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? There are not two baptisms. You cannot be baptized into Krishna. You cannot be baptized into Buddha or Muhammad. You cannot be, there are not two spirits. You are baptized into the life and the death of the one Lord, and you enter into the one body, and consequently the one faith. And the last number one we see in verse 6. One God and Father of all who is over all, and through all, and in all. There is one God. And this speaks about a distinctive God who has attributes who has characteristics. He's omnipresent, based on this very text, and throughout Scripture for that matter. He's infinite. He's overall. He's transcendent. He's outside of our natural realm and our natural time. He is sovereign. Eternal. And there's many more. He is the God of these seven doctrines. He is the God and the source of our Christian unity. And He is overall. And I want to just affirm that again with Paul writing to the Corinthians saying this in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is but one God and Father from whom all things and we exist for Him. And one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things and we exist through Him. You are part of the body of Christ. You've been baptized into this body, unified in spirit. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ. And you are 
brothers and sisters unified in spirit in the unchanging bond of peace. It is our duty to preserve what God has done. But more on this one Lord. We see the Trinity here. We see the Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit in verse 4, the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 5, and the God and Father who is above all in verse 6. Deuteronomy 6.4, the Lord your God is one. God is one. Yet God is one in essence, three in persons. The fullness of the Godhead, we see both terms of unity and diversity as well. The Godhead, there are unique roles. And the Godhead, this God and Father, Father, Son, and Spirit is the source of our unity and it is the source of our doctrine. So, these seven ones in this text, verses 4 to 6, formulate objective absolute, exclusive truth. And they are all distinct. Christian, don't lose that. They are distinct. The unity comes on God's terms, not man's. Well, there is one God, and He's given us this theology, these doctrines. But as I said already, and I want to look at another point here, these doctrines unite us. But these doctrines also divide. What can infiltrate our Christian unity? I want you to take a minute and you consider how this pertains to us. What can infiltrate the Christian unity in the body here? You know, there are many things that can cause disunity. Division. And we see it. In the so-called body of Christ. Seeing things in the Southern Baptist Convention. What I want to look at today is what infiltrates the unity inside from the outside. That's what our focus is going to be. Now, the origin of our unity is the Holy Trinity. But understand something, folks, brothers and sisters. There is also the unholy trinity. There is the me, myself, and I. There is man. Now we looked at that, how that from inside can give us a problem when pride rises up last, last time we were in Ephesians, verses 1 to 3. But there is the, the me, myself, and I, the unholy trinity. There is the doctrines of man from the outside that seek to come inside. Understand, ultimately... Man has always tried to take the place of God and usurp the Word of God. And God's doctrines divide us and they protect us from the unholy trinity. And they will, by necessity, rightly divide us from ungodliness when we are obeying them. Now, there is nothing new under the sun. And Satan repackages lies and Satan energizes man when man takes the place of God it never ends well and still to this day man is still trying to take the place of God and we are seeing the doctrines of man trying to infiltrate into the church in a pluralism in, in, in many ways in this cultural Marxist undercurrent 
We'll look at that in a minute. But understand, it will not go well because the doctrines of man are not based on exclusive truth. They're not based on the Word of God. And we see scenarios, at least attitudes, over and over again rising up that we saw in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel. Where man kind of tries to flick God out of the way. Because man knows better. Man can do it better. I want to read you something from the ESV study Bible regarding the Tower of Babel. See if this sounds familiar. Maybe, maybe not. Now the Tower of Babel presents a unified humanity using all of its resources to establish a city that is the antithesis of what God intended when he created the world. The tower is a symbol of human autonomy. And the city builders see themselves as determining and establishing their own destiny without any reference to the Lord. Kind of sounds familiar about the trajectory that we're on here culturally with this administration and throughout the world. Now we've heard this talk for a very long time of possibly a one world system. Maybe, maybe not. Within the one world system, a one world currency, a one world religion, with one world spirituality, and certainly the Bible, with its objective truth, doesn't fit into this system. Absolutely not. And the one world religion, well, what would it be? I think it's, we're seeing it already, I think it's called secularism. Where man becomes God. With the end result of some sort of man-made unity. And many are on this path think that there can be a utopia on earth. Part of the utopia would be to get rid of this, these exclusive truths and these distinctions. And they promise a unity that is artificial, it's temporal, and it's built upon lies. See, the spirit of the Antichrist is anything that is Antichrist. Anything that seeks to replace Christ, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. It's not a mindset of, uh oh, one day the spirit of the Antichrist is going to come. No, the spirit of the Antichrist is already here. Is it increasing in momentum? Is a restraining of God lessening? Maybe. Very, very much maybe. Now, one of the things that this one world religion will promise is that you can make your own God. You can create your own God. A God to your own liking. And even better, in secularism, you can become your own God. Does that sound familiar? It's Genesis 3. Lies repackaged all over again. It's the garden. It's the garden all over again. This is duplicitous. This will inevitably collapse because it's built on lies. But it can do extensive damage to the fabric of a society. And certainly can damage the church if the church does not maintain or preserve the unity. And it can do a lot to the hearts and minds of its victims. And those who propagate these doctrines of man, their end will not end well. Their end will be destruction. 
Now, there were many winds and waves, and Paul write about that later on in Ephesians, that take people captive, believers. See that no one take you captive. He tells the Colossians that. He's going to refer to that later on in Ephesians. So, these are doctrines that divide. And these are doctrines that can confuse the body of Christ. And there are many movements, many philosophies. And many of them are camouflaged in human virtue. Don't miss that. The camouflage in human virtue. This move towards Marxism and socialism causes disunity. And it will have an effect spiritually. Never miss all of these things, these man-made doctrines. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers and authorities in wicked places. The origin is spiritual. Don't miss that. Now, in my estimation, in the estimation of the elders, we cannot see how the body of Christ in any shape or form could affirm these Marxist ideologies, especially when you read an epistle like Ephesians, where Christ has reconciled people groups. And we see now this anti-racist racism that's coming into the church and seeks to divide. You simply cannot say amen to this because it defies the law of non-contradiction. It makes no sense. We see divisive doctrines like critical race theory. They're divisive. We'll speak more on that in the days ahead, God willing. And people try to propagate these doctrines, camouflaged in virtue, Camouflage in some form of sincerity or love. These are anti-Christ doctrines. Amen. Period. Now, Christ has broken down these barriers that we see in Ephesians. And many in the body of Christ will seek to reconstruct them. We've spoken about this when we were in chapter 2. They cannot logically exist with God's truth. They cannot exist. They contradict one another. And they're derivative of not just man, but the father of lies, Satan. And it has no place in the body of Christ. Understand something, brethren. The church of Jesus Christ is not a social experiment. It's God's supernatural institution. Given God's objective truth from God's word, now, do we need carnal man to tell us how the church ought to see things? How the church ought to conduct itself? Do we need to get some books that were authored a couple of years ago to see, gee, we missed the Bible. We didn't get it right. But that's what's happening. Be aware. Now, we're seeing a rise in well in secularism. Seeing also many now in the world are bowing their knee and taking on the Savior, the God of government. Because government will take care of them. Government's going to take care of them. And when government will become your Savior. And many feel that government will be the uniting force here in the United States. This will be a good thing. There is an elitist movement in government who hates this Bible. This Bible. They hate the God of this Bible. They hate Him. And I believe they hate His people as well. I could be wrong. That's the perception I see. 
I just wonder, when it comes to objective truth and these absolutes, will it be like it was in AD 64 under Nero, where we will be allowed maybe someday to say that Jesus is Lord? Will we have to affirm that Caesar is Lord as well in order to say Jesus is Lord? I don't know. It's something to think about. Will we have to say Kaiser Curios in order to say that Christ is Lord? See, again, that cannot be because it's contradictory. There is one Lord. Now, will we be asked to be unified with things that are incompatible with the biblical unity we just saw, the doctrines of God? There are many stormy waves ahead. We are in a storm, supposedly. Uh, the storm is not coming theologically and spiritually. The storm is here. And if you adhere to that prayer that you heard this morning, you'll be all right. You'll be all right because God will never leave you nor forsake you. And be not anxious. Now, say, the world is spinning out of control. No, it's not. It's spinning right in accordance with God's grand mosaic. And Jesus Christ will return Someday to sum up all things in heaven and on earth, Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. So don't worry. And in addition, there's one more here. We see the doctrines, a lot of this secular humanism is based on pluralism, non-objective truth. And these are contradictory to the seven we see. So, in pluralism, and by implication, this one world system, you may be able to say Father God, but you better affirm Mother God as well. It may very well be. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. Now, we would all affirm the truths we saw, the seven ones, right? Absolutely. But I think the warning for us today is that an overzealousness for unity. Because understand, we are called to reach out. We are called to be lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. We are on a mission. We have a rescue plan. But we have, our rescue plan is based on Christ and Christ alone, based on those seven ones. Many in the body of Christ can fall prey to an overzealousness of just trying to be unified with things of the world. And there is no unity. There's unity in the Spirit. That's it. And the temptation is not for us in this congregation to apostatize and run away. No, but I think it's more to compromise. I think that's the temptation for us. Now, we must come to grips with something and understand that America now is a pagan nation. And my opinion and the opinion of the elders, many of you here, I do think America is under judgment. And that should not be a surprise what we're seeing. And if secular humanism is the fastest growing religion in America, then therefore there is the pluralism there's fancy words here. There's also our nation now being a postmodern nation and post-Christian mentality. Postmodernism is post-Christian as well. Now, in light of unity, I want to read something for you from St. Andrew's pastor, Burke Parsons. Uh, this is very applicable to, I think, what we see going on right now. Here's the quote. During the second half of the 20th century... Post-Christian societies throughout the world began to shout the mantra, Unity is God. 
in attempting to liberate themselves from the truths upon which they were established. They bound themselves to a law that requires perfect compliance. Consequently, it has become necessary for every post-Christian society to promulgate its cause in accordance with the one code. In unity, we trust. In tolerance, we flourish. And in pluralism, we are free. Unity is God, and there is no God but unity. It is the destiny of human societies to self-destruct. And in the manner of fallen men to make self-destruction seem worthwhile. End quote. But in this humanistic mantra, unity is God, he writes another quote later on in the article. Speaking to Christians, rather, we, the Christians, proclaim the truth of God in Christ. In God we trust. In truth we flourish. And in Christ we are free. Christ is truth. And in Christ we are one. Although it is the destiny of human societies to self-destruct, it is our destiny to reign forever as one in Christ. End quote. So understand, brethren, there is an inseparable relation here we see with these seven core doctrines to God's unity and God's truth. And the triune God is the source of our unity. And because of Jesus Christ... We can know truth. We can know truth by Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit. And when we know truth, the truth has set us free. That's part of the mission. To go out with the mission, with the gospel, so others would know truth and they would be free. Free from what? Free from depression? Maybe. Free from financial issues? Maybe. Maybe not. Free from the wrath of God. Free from being bound in sin. And by implication, brethren, there is one gospel. There's only one gospel. God had one plan after the fall, Genesis 3.15, to send the Savior. He will crush the serpent's head. He will destroy the works of the devil. And He will save His people from their sin. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. We are to be ambassadors of reconciliation to this unity, to this peace, this singular way. That you see a world that's on thousands of paths that all go to destruction. May the Lord empower us to do this. Understand that Jesus Christ is Lord, was Lord, will only be Lord. Philippians 2, 9 and 11 from the NIV. For this reason God highly exalted Him, and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you are a Christian... You must come to terms with absolute truth, exclusive truth. Who is Jesus? Well, to quote C.S. Lewis, based on his own words, Jesus Christ, and based on the word of God, is he a good teacher? Is he a lunatic? Is he a liar? I am the way, the truth, and the life? No, he is Lord. 
Never, ever forget that. And never, ever compromise these doctrines. In life, going forward, in death, going forward, there is but one way. Now in concluding, we are to walk worthy of our calling. To walk in Christian unity. To preserve this unity. And we see the characteristics of humility. And it takes humility, brethren. And it takes gentleness. We looked at meekness. And patience and tolerance for one another. Humility and gentleness to bend your knee. And to come to terms that this is correct. This is the right way. And maybe my biases, maybe my emotions, maybe my fears really should take a back seat. To preserve this unity, there are the attitudes we see. There are also core essential doctrines. They are guideposts. And these doctrines give us unity and they protect us from disunity. And absolute truth acts as a counterweight to the multiplicity of doctrines of man that are all antichrist at this time. And the doctrines of God act as an anchor in any storm. To be unified in truth, thy word is truth. Thy word is truth. And God's truth binds us together. And for the collective body of Christ, we do not have a B plan. This is what we have. There is one Spirit, there is one Lord, there is one God, the Father. When the doctrines unify us, they will by necessity once again divide us. Divide us from things that are not beneficial to us and they will not bring us unity. So may we walk in God's unity by walking in God's truth. And may we love and consider one another in the spirit of peace. Let's pray. And before we pray, sorry, may we be the lights that Pastor George spoke about this morning. Not hide the word in a bushel. May we rise up, let our light so shine, and may the gospel go forth from this congregation always. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thy word is truth. We have come to know thy word. We have come to these essentials. We have come to your truth, and the truth has set us free. Now, Father, we pray for protection here, Lord, from any of these diabolical, man-made, Satan-derived doctrines that we see so prevalent in our society. May we be a discerning people, Lord. May we be a people, Lord, who are protected by the word of truth. And may we preserve this unity. May we be eager for it, zealous for it, to maintain unity in the bond of peace. Father God, there's much we can pray for. But Father, we ask for your protection. In Jesus' name, amen.